There we go. As I've already said, as of this morning, 29,000 and counting are dead in the nations of Turkey and Syria. Such devastating news, such loss of life. A feeling of hopelessness comes across. In moments like this and other natural disasters, as tragedy strikes, there's a temptation for mankind. How can there be a loving God if he allows such things to happen? How can he be a good God if he allows such things to happen? Maybe we think, oh, we don't ask that question because we're, we have faith. But the reality is, in various ways, we begin to doubt the truth of God's love in moments like this. And certainly that of our neighbors do. They begin to question, how could God be a loving God when such devastation strikes? How can a loving God allow 29,000 people to die in an earthquake? Was he not good enough and sovereign enough to stop such? These are the questions that go through our mind. And yet, we as biblical Christians have the answer. We have the hope because there is a way that shows that God has loved us. In fact, that goes beyond everything we see in the world around us. And that is the cross of Christ. God's love has been poured out to us on the cross in the giving of the only Son of God in Jesus Christ. And that's the hope we want to remind ourselves of this morning, both for our own hearts and then to take out in the midst of all of this to proclaim to the nations, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, bad things happen. Yes, disaster strikes, but God has loved us in such a manner that his love should never be questioned by you or me again. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to go ahead and open up to John three sixteen through 21. While this is a familiar passage, I pray that this morning we do not miss the beauty and the marvel of what is here in such a text. While you're turning there to John three sixteen through 21, we've been looking the last few weeks of what does it mean to actually believe. In John 2, 23 through 25, there at the end of, of the sermon two weeks ago, we looked at many believed on the name of Jesus, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. So the question remained, why? Well, because Jesus knew what was in man. And then just last week in, in the first eight verses, we see Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, come and question Jesus and say, look, I even acknowledge you must be from God. Nobody can do these signs unless you're from God. And yet even Nicodemus, as well as the rest of the world, is told unless you were born again, you will not see, nor will you enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Nicodemus goes on to question, how can these things be? And he shows him through the sun, lifted up, just as the bronze serpent was lifted up in numbers. And that's where we pick up this morning. Almost as a commentary here of John three sixteen through 21. While it's significant, it is Jesus giving further explanation of what he's already stated. That the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's given the why. This must be. 
why this takes place, why the sun is lifted. So follow along in your Bible or on the screen as we read God's word from John 3.16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Well, it should be somewhat clear of kind of what the main idea of John three sixteen through 21 is, namely that God is loving to the world. But let's sum it up this way. God's surprising love is shown to the world in the sinning of Jesus instead of judgment. But judgment comes apart from belief in Jesus. I think that sums this set of verses up well. And Lord willing is the main idea of this sermon. Let me read that again though. God's surprising love is shown to the world in the sinning of Jesus instead of judgment. But judgment comes apart from belief in Jesus. We're going to unfold this in two parts. Part number one, God's surprising love. God's surprising love. And part two, God's surprising judgment. God's surprising judgment. Let's look at first at part one, God's surprising love. You know, John 3.16 is one of the most familiar and most beloved passages for those who have been born again. And believed in Jesus. It's even so well known. It's known amongst those who do not believe. Its popularity continues to grow. And yet there's a danger for us sitting here this morning. Sure, many of us have been in the church for over 20 years or more. Including that of myself. And as we have, we've become so familiar with this passage that we begin to maybe occasionally meditate on it. We like to reference it. But we don't dwell upon the richness that is here in God's surprising love. Because we gloss over the context of what's around it. We fail to, to meditate upon the richness of this love that God has poured out to us. So let us camp out here. Let us dwell upon the richness of John 3.16 here for a moment. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Think about it. This verse tells us that a particular God, not just some random God, but a particular God, Yahweh, I am, has loved the world in a particular manner for a particular purpose. A particular God has loved a 
people or the world in a particular manner for a particular purpose. We see that there in 3.16. For God so loved the world. A particular God has loved the world. How? In giving His only Son the purpose that whoever believes in Him should have life. You see, we often miss the point of this because we get stumbling over one part of this. For God so loved the world. And our modern English so doesn't carry the weight it should. It's not in the sense that we like to use the word so. God loved me so much. The people loved me so much. You know, one of the beauties of multiple translations, multiple good translations in the English language is that these translations can work as commentaries and help us to better understand what is being said here. Most of our translations use for God so loved the world. But one translation, the Christian Standard Bible, puts it this way. Hear how the CSB puts this. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that whoever or everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God loves the world in the manner of giving his only son to the world. This is what this verse is talking about. God loved the world in the manner he gave his own son, his only son to the world. But how? How did he give this one and only son? Well, back up to, to John three fourteen and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus was given to the world to be lifted up on a cross, an instrument of torment and death, the most cruel form of death in his day and ultimately probably still in the history of the world. He was lifted up on a cross to suffer, to bleed, to die as the Lamb of God. He was the sacrificial lamb that we read about in John 1.29. God loved the world and that he gave his own son to shed his own blood for us. What length has, has God's love been made known to us? What length has God's love been shown to us? That God's own son was not held back. That he went to the cross willingly to suffer and die so that you and I may have hope at life. But not just any hope. Think about it this way. Not only did God do this, he did this for those who committed treason against him. This love is poured out for those who were treasonous against the king of glory. Because like Adam and Eve in the garden, when they took of that fruit, that forbidden fruit, they threw off God as their king. They said, no, we don't want to be under God. We want to be like God. We want to be you. We want to call 
and determine what is good and evil in our own eyes, not yours, God. Friends, we have done the same. From the moment we were born, we have done the same. We have committed that same treason as Adam and Eve in our rebellion because we like to be our own kings. We like to be like God, not under God. Therefore, we're treasonous against the king. And all that that treason deserves is death. What do you think it adds here? Why Jesus adds here that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Because that perishing is what we deserve. That perishing is all we are due. The wages of our works here in the flesh, they deserve death. They deserve us to perish. And yet, this is the very world that God has poured out his love for in Jesus. This treasonous people. You see the love of God? You see how his love has been poured out on the undeserving? Folks, if you think you deserve God's love, if I think I deserve God's love, we're fooling ourselves. We don't deserve it. That's what makes this love so surprising, so amazing. Because it's undeserved. It's unmerited. God's love is poured out on us, a treasonous people. The Son was given. He was sent to the world. Not to judge the world. Verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The condemnation is what we deserved, and yet that's not why Jesus was sent. He was not sent to condemn the world, but to save the world so that none should perish. That's why Jesus came. Jesus was given for this particular purpose to save us, to rescue us. From the perishing we deserved. From the condemnation we deserved. And yet, we're given a particular means that this comes by. That whoever believes in him should not perish. So what is this belief that we're being called to? Is it simply believe in his name? Well, no, we know that from John 2, 23 through 25. The people there believed in his name, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them for he knew what was in them. It's not enough to simply believe in the name and, and deny who Jesus was. That's not true belief. Maybe you have a part of it, but you don't have true belief. Okay, maybe it's acknowledging that Jesus is the son or, or sent from God. Well, look back at John 3, 1 through 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. No. True belief is not merely acknowledging that Jesus is the one sent from God. So what does it mean to truly believe? Well, it means looking to the cross, looking to Jesus 
and knowing that you're as good as dead and the only hope is by looking to Him and resting in the promises in Him. Just like the people of Israel would have had to do for the bronze serpent, they would have had to look up to the bronze serpent and live instead of die. True belief is looking to Jesus, to rest in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation. It's not Jesus and something, it's Jesus alone for that salvation. Jesus is like, believing rightly in Jesus is like a trust fall exercise. In a trust fall exercise, to do it correctly, you don't just kind of, eh, you fall back into the arms, trusting the person to catch you. Friends, if we rightly believe in Jesus, we're going to trust and fall in his arms and trust him to catch us and to hold us. That's true and right belief. It's unwavering hope in him and him alone. Calvin puts it this way. He says, the true looking of faith, I say, is placing Christ before one's eyes and beholding in him the heart of God poured out in love. Our firm and substantial support is to rest on the death of Christ as its own pledge. Friends, is your true faith resting in Jesus alone for that salvation as the only means of receiving God's love? Because it's the only way God's love is poured out is in Jesus and him lifted on the cross to die for our sins. If you are trusting in Jesus and something, so maybe you trust in Jesus and your church membership. You're not rightly trusting in Jesus. You're trusting in something else. If you're trusting in Jesus and your baptism, you're not trusting in Jesus alone. Baptism is an afterthought of salvation. It is evidence of that salvation, but it is not salvific in and of itself. It's not what you rest in. True, right, biblical belief is resting in Jesus as the sacrificial lamb of God. Trusting that his sacrifice took away the most heinous of our sins. And God has forgotten them. That they have been dealt with once and for all. Are you trusting in that, Christian? I hope so. Because that's what true faith is. It rests in this Jesus and his work alone. True and right belief looks to Jesus and him alone. Friends, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This whoever believes is essential as well. It doesn't matter what your past was. It doesn't matter whether you are Jew or Gentile. If you believe in Jesus, there is hope of salvation. That would have thrown off the world in this point. Because it was expected for God to love the Jews and the Jewish people. But for him to love the world, the nations, the Gentiles was unexpected. I don't know about you, but that's good news for us here in this room as seeing that not many of us are from Jewish background. God has loved the world that whosoever believes. He has loved the peoples of the world. Whosoever believes. 
But it's also important for us to think and consider our backgrounds. No matter what we have done for those who are murderers and adulterers, those who are gossips and slanders, those who defy image bearers of God by maligning them. There's forgiveness if we turn to Jesus. Whosoever believes. It does not give prerequisite that only those that seem half put together are the ones who are saved. It's good news for people like you and me. No matter who we were, to believe in Jesus brings salvation. Again, do you see the depth that God's love has gone to? He has loved treasonous rebels. It would be like, well, in the end, he does. Luke Skywalker showing love to Darth Vader. Think back to the 70s and Star Wars. If you've not seen it, jokingly I say this, but you need sanctified. God has loved rebellious sinners. He has loved people from every ends of the earth. This is the love that God has poured out for us in His Son, Jesus. That no matter who we are or what we came from, we find grace in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. Think about the words of this song. The first verse of His Mercy is More by Matt Boswell and Matt Papa. Here's how it goes. What love could remember no wrongs that we have done? Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. You see the love that God has shown us. His mercy is greater than our sins and our sorrows, our transgressions and our trespasses. It's greater than the treason in which we committed if we but believe in Jesus. This is the love that God has shown us and given us in the sending of his only son. So how does God show his love in a world that's decaying, filled with disaster and sadness and sorrow? By the giving of his greatest gift to Jesus, his one and only son, to be lifted up to suffer and die so that we may live instead of that's God's love poured out for us. So we, one, need to remind ourselves over and over again of the depth of this love that God has shown us. And yet you think, oh, I don't forget that, friends. Let me challenge you. I want you to write this down for this week. At what point do you begin to doubt God's love for you? What does it take for you to be tempted to begin to wonder, how is God loving me? How am I seeing God's love in the world? It's the cross, but we will forget that this week. Mark my word. One, we will forget it, all of us. In different ways, it will come. But it's so important for us to remember that. But also this love should serve as an example to us. If God has loved the world in this way by giving his best, 
by not withholding his one and only son? Is that the same kind of reciprocal love we are giving to God and to one another? If God did not withhold his best in Jesus to love us, are we loving God and one another by giving our best? It's by no accident that we are told that Jesus teaches his disciples that unless we hate our father or mother or wife and our children, our brothers and sisters, and even our own life, that we cannot be his disciples. Our best love should be for God and God alone. You cannot rightly love your spouse unless you love God supreme. You cannot rightly love your children unless you love God supreme. You cannot rightly love neighbor unless you love God supreme. So our first love should be to God, meaning giving him our best instead of what is just left over in the week. What dictates your schedule for the week? Is it everything else you've got going on? And then if there's time left for God, or does he dictate? Does the Sunday morning gathering dictate your plans for the week? Guarding it? Guarding that time to meet with others and encourage them in Christ? What dictates? Is it God is only loved when it's convenient? But also, what about one another? How about laboring to love one another first and foremost, instead of giving them what we have left to give that week, giving them our best to love our neighbor as ourselves? Putting their preferences, their desires, working to labor for their good instead of just our own. If God has loved us in this way and, and we feel the love of God, part of the reciprocating love is to love one another in such a manner. Christians, let us seek to love one another by putting each other first, by laboring for each other's good and not just our own self-preservation and giving whatever we have left. Make it a priority to pour into one another, to encourage one another in the faith. You're going to be challenged in the members meeting here in a little bit on one of these things. Even now be thinking of how can I love others and put them first and make sure they are actually seeking God and what's best for them. Friends, as surprising as all this love is, we should marvel in it. But we also need to see the flip side of this. God's love is surprising. The fact that he has loved us by giving his only son of Jesus. But there's also a judgment awaiting. God's surprising judgment. And that's where we turn in our second part. Most, much more brief. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Those who do not believe in the name of Jesus stand condemned already. They stand condemned already in the right here and right now. Why? Because they have not believed in Jesus. The only way to not be condemned. To not believe in Jesus is to be condemned already. Romans 8.1, our call to worship this morning, we saw there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But those who do not believe, those who are not in Christ, stand condemned in this world, in this moment, 
All that is left for them is death and the final judgment. Why? Why is this? Why is this their drastic difference? Well, verses 19 and 20 help unfold this why. Verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. They stand condemned because they've rejected the light. They love the darkness over the light. They love the darkness over the light. Why? One who loves the darkness loves to hide in deception. They love to try and justify their actions by their circumstances. They try to justify the evil and the maliciousness that they do. These love darkness instead of light, instead of the light of truth. They're deceived by it. But those who also love darkness try to hide their evilness, their, their need of somebody else greater than themselves. Part of the, the ways that loving darkness works is one, loving self more than the truth. That we're sinners in need of a savior. That's part of how this darkness works. It deceives and hides that truth. But it also, the darkness, by loving it, you want to remain in that darkness. You don't want your works to come to the light and be exposed for what they are. People realizing you're evil and sinful and vile. That's what it means to love darkness. Christian, this is why it's so important for us who are in the light, walking with Jesus, to be quick to bring our sin to light. To not allow it to remain in darkness. Friends, if you, you are struggling with a particular sin this morning and you have not yet brought it to confession both to God and to others, you keeping it in darkness is only going to allow it to manifest and to grow and to choke the life out of you. If we are people of the light, we need to acknowledge our sin, to bring it to the light so that the light can expose it. Yes, it's hard. But by the light exposing it, it means that we are free from that. We acknowledge that, yes, we're sinners. We acknowledge God's right truth, that we need a Savior. And then we're able to be rightly exposed before others so they cannot necessarily gossip and slander us, but so that they can help us. Do you realize by... Uh, confessing sin by bringing it to the light. Others are able to know what our struggles are and to say, how are you doing in this area, brother or sister? Hey, let's set up an accountability time. Let's meet every week or every other week and talk through this struggle. How are you doing? How are you increasing? How can I pray for you? Hey, if you're struggling in this particular sin, call me. Text me next time you feel that temptation. Let's talk through it. Let's remind each other of Scripture. Do you see what bringing that sin to the light can do? It can free instead of sitting there hiding it, thinking, oh, I'm all alone. And Satan just loves to sit there and say, you are alone. Nobody's going to understand. There's no forgiveness for you in this. And that life is just going to be strangled out of you. Friends. Be people of the light as Christians. Confess sin. Bring it. Expose it to the light so that we may rightly walk in Christ. 
but those here who have continued to reject this light. Friend, let me plead with you. While there is still time, that darkness that you love so much may be tempting with its seductive speech, calling to you, and yet in the end, death will surround you. It will strangle you. And you will die a slow death and stand before God Almighty, the very one who loved you to the point of sending his own son, whom you rejected. And all that awaits you is condemnation and judgment and to cast out of his sight forever. Repent while there is still time. Believe while there is still time. Because the day will come when there is no more time. And you will stand before a holy God, condemned, not because he did not love you, but because you rejected the truth of Jesus. Repent and believe today. Friends, we all will respond in one of these two ways. To the good news of Jesus Christ. To the love of God that has been poured out on us. We will either respond by running to the light and setting our eyes on its gazing beauty and the glory that God's only son was lifted up on a cross. Or we will reject that light and run to the darkness and hide in it thinking we somehow can escape. To find our end is death. Which are you? Believe in Jesus. Believe God's love for you in Christ and hold to that hope this day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you.